0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Sam, you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, I believe it was 748, Carol. There we go. 748 and 749. I'm also going to be in um, Acts chapter 1, page 770. So, in the Pew Bibles, the Gospel of Luke chapter 24 as we reach uh, the end. Uh, let me begin by making a comment that I think will sound blasphemous to some of you, but uh, I assure you that it's not, so let me explain. All right? The statement's going to sound blasphemous, and here it goes, and that is that Jesus didn't finish the job. Now, that sounds blasphemous. And I don't mean that Jesus failed and that he that he didn't do something that he was supposed to do. Uh, Jesus obviously finished the job and he did all that he was supposed to do. We see, if the job is dying and rising for our sins, then Jesus finished the job. And oftentimes, when we think about Jesus, we think, well, that's what his job was. He was to come and die for our sins and rise again, and that's it, and he finished the job. He, he did kind of all that was necessary for our salvation. But I suggest that the job that that Jesus was, was doing included more than that. And as I go further this morning, I'm going to explain exactly Jesus was fulfilling the role of Israel, the call of Abraham, the mission of God's people. And in that sense, he didn't finish the job. And I'll see if I can explain. According to the Gospel of Luke, in fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and even the book of Acts and the entirety of the New Testament, the early church proclaimed that Jesus Christ was dead, and risen from the, was dead and had risen from the dead. He was crucified at the hands of the Romans. He was buried, and on the third day his tomb was empty. Some of the women, the early followers of Jesus, went to the tomb and found it empty. They came back and told the disciples, most notably Peter and John, who themselves ran to the tomb. And to their surprise, it was empty. Let's read Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Verse 5. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember, remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, he'll be crucified, and on the third day, he'll be risen again. And then they remembered his words, verse nine. When they came back from the tomb, they told all, all these things to the eleven and to the, and to the others. And the eleven, of course, are the disciples, not including Judas. Uh, so hence, it's the twelve who's now eleven for a short period of time. Um, and to all the others, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who were with them who told them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Over the course of the next 40 days, Jesus is going to appear to the disciples and to various others. According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he appears to 500 brothers at the same time. Later on, he appears, of course, to Paul himself. In the middle of Luke chapter 24, he's going to appear to two people on the road to Emmaus. One of them we know is named Clopas. We don't know the name of the other one. It might even be his wife. Those two men on the road to Emmaus then go back to Jerusalem and say, hey guys, we've seen the resurrected Jesus. And they go back to Jerusalem and then Jesus appears back in Jerusalem later on that Sunday night, that same day of the resurrection. And let's pick the story back up at the end of chapter 24. Luke 24 verse 44. Jesus entered the room, and the room was locked. The doors were locked because everyone was afraid, and naturally so. Verse 44 says this. Jesus said to the disciples, This is what I told you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins We'll be preaching his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, page 770 in your pew Bibles. And what we're going to notice is that the author of the Gospel of Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. And it's very apparent when reading Luke and Acts that Luke intended these two volumes to be read as one, in a sense. He knew when he wrote the Gospel of Luke, he was going to write another volume, namely the book of Acts. So Acts, chapter 1. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the next book is John, and the next book is Acts. Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus... I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen, after his suffering he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father had promised which you have heard me speak about. Let's go down to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let me suggest that the Gospel of Luke is going to give us two key thoughts that are going to be brought to the fore uh, in these chapters. Now, let me give you two key thoughts in the Gospel of Luke. The first one is, is that in the Gospel of Luke, salvation is for the Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile means non-Jew, anybody that's not Jewish. Salvation for the Gentiles as well. And this, of course, was, was difficult for the Jewish people to think about. Uh, we know this is, is, is quite biblical. God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to send you to the nations, and I'm going I'm to bless all the nations through you, Abraham. But if you think about the history of the Jewish people from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, you can kind of understand why they lost sight of the fact that the gospel was for the nations as well. After all, they spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, where Pharaoh was slaughtering their firstborn sons, or slaughtering their sons. Um, And after that, the Assyrians come in and conquer them. After that, the Babylonians come in and conquer them. After that, the Persians come in and conquer them. After that, the Greeks come in, and and after that, the Romans. All they've experienced for 2,000 years is oppression at the hands of the foreign nations. And you're supposed to tell me that we're supposed to love them? That God cares about them? No way. We're God's chosen people. Forget about them. And that's one of the reasons why we see such conflict between Jesus and the, and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Because Jesus was saying, Rome is not your enemy. Of course Rome is my enemy. They crucified my brother last week. What do you mean Rome's not my enemy? My daughters are slaves in Rome. What do you mean they're not the enemy? And Jesus says... The devil is your enemy. Rome is not your enemy. Salvation for the Gentiles. Now, you may not be aware of this, but the most prolific writer of the New Testament, the writer in the New Testament who wrote more than any other writer in the New Testament is Luke. You want to say Paul, of course, right? Because Paul wrote 13 books. But when you combine the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts together by volume, Luke wrote more than all of Paul's 13 letters combined. And here's something intriguing that you may not be aware of as well. Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in the Bible. He's a Gentile. He comes to faith in Christ year, uh, a number of years after this. He's a medical doctor uh, by trade. So for Luke, salvation for the Gentiles is quite personal. It's quite important. He wants to know that it's for me too, and it's for all my friends, and for those, uh, it's for everyone. Salvation is for the Gentiles. Now, I want you to look carefully here. I'm going to put up the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And let's pay attention to this verse, and I'll explain to you uh, uh, why uh, uh, a little bit. Simeon, this is the, when Jesus was a baby being presented at the temple. Uh, there's an old man named Simeon who took him, uh, took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, which is his way of saying, I can die. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. For the Gospel of Luke and for Luke's concern, salvation is for the Gentiles. And he notes that even when Jesus was a baby, even Simeon in the temple said that Jesus is the light of salvation and a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, the second key thing in the Gospel of Luke that he wants to note is empowerment by the Spirit for ministry. The Holy Spirit is extremely important in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke chapter 11, where uh, the Gospel of Luke refers to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, At the end of the Lord's Prayer, Luke notes this. He says, if you then, being evil, this is Jesus speaking, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Pray this way, our Father, and that's, when he finishes that prayer, Jesus says, look, if you are who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the, the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we go back to Luke 24 at the end of the gospel, and we note this. But stay, Luke 24, verse 49, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. The disciples are told at the end of the gospel of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts, Here's the deal. You need to go out to the nations. Oh, but not yet. Because you guys are not ready for this yet. If you go out now, it's not going to go well. you got to stay here in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then you'll be clothed with power from on high, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And one of the questions we're going to ask in two weeks is again, how did this thing grow? How, how did anybody believe this message? I mean, it's a message of a Jewish man who dies by Roman crucifixion. You go tell somebody in Rome, hey guys, this Jewish guy was crucified so that you could be saved. They're gonna, they're gonna laugh at you, they're gonna mock you. This is silliness. But because the disciples are in power with the Holy Spirit, the prophetic word that goes out and goes forth from them becomes effective. And maybe as many as a million people outside of Jerusalem, Romans, Gentiles, Greeks, Africans are following this Jesus who was crucified, dead, buried, and risen. All right, so what does this mean for us and what does this mean to the church? Well, let me make a couple points. Number one, I'm going to say this. The church is the embodiment of Christ to the world. The church is the embodiment of Christ to the world. Uh, The the imagery of of light. You are the light of the world. Uh, I'm going to make you a light unto the nations. It's the church that's the embodiment of Christ to the world. A number of years ago, a pastor in Santa Cruz, uh, up in Northern California, wrote a book called, um, They Love Jesus But Not the Church. It was a provocative book, actually. They Love Jesus But Not the Church. This book is actually about 20 years old or, or, or more now. Uh, and his book was basically saying is, look, the, the young people in Santa Cruz the radicals that, 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 that come into my community they actually love Jesus they just don't like the Christians and my response to you is that's not possible it's not possible you can't love Jesus and not the church also because the church is the embodiment of Christ to the world now, there are aspects of the church that none of us like. Obviously, you know, the hypocrisy. And, but the reality is, we are the embodiment of Christ to the world. The church is the visible expression of Christ. The Holy Spirit manifests his presence through us. And the best way to understand this principle is to kind of go back for a second. And, and let's understand what's the role of the church. Is to, to understand what the role of the church is, is to understand the call of God upon his people. So let me see if I can explain All right, back in the Old Testament, Israel's call was to be a light unto the nations. Okay? Now, Israel's call was to be a light unto the nations. Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6 both say basically the same thing. Isaiah 42.6 says, I, the Lord, have called you, referring to Israel, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will also keep you and make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.6 6. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God called Israel to be a light of revelation to the nations, or the word Gentiles means nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, this call, point number two, was, fil- was fulfilled by Jesus. This call was fulfilled by Jesus. In other words, when I said at the beginning, it's going to sound blasphemous to say Jesus didn't finish the job, It's because I'm looking at the at the job, at the role of Jesus, as more than just dying and rising again, but as fulfilling the call of God upon Israel. The call upon Israel was to be a light of revelation for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now let's go back and look at Luke Luke chapter two again, the verse, the passage that we read earlier. Simeon says, It says, Simeon took Jews in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now may dismiss your servant in peace. Because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. What's Simeon doing? He's quoting Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Simeon's quoting Isaiah saying, Fulfilled in this baby, this child, Jesus, is the fulfillment of God's call upon Israel. And the call upon Israel was to be a light of revelation for the nations that his salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, we often stop there, and that's fine. It's a good place to stop. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's coming and promises, and we're all good, but we need to go one step further. The third point now is that this call continues in the life of God's people today. This call continues in the life of God's people today. And this is what I mean when I say that Jesus didn't finish the job, and the answer is Jesus didn't take the gospel to Rome. Jesus didn't take the gospel to the nations. The task of Israel was to fulfill God's call to to bring the light of revelation to the nations, and Jesus didn't actually do that. He started it, and there were some exceptions. There's a Syrophoenician woman, and there's a a few times where Jesus heals Gentiles, or he, he casts demons out of a demonically possessed Gentile. He does a few exceptions, but those exceptions actually show the rule. He didn't go to the nations. He gathers the disciples after the resurrection, back in the Gospel of Luke 24, and he says, here's the, response. here's the deal, you are going to take it to the nations. But don't go yet, not until you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. So later on in the book of Acts now, in Acts chapter 13, uh, a man named Paul who becomes a follower of Christ and a man named Barnabas began taking the gospel around the Roman world. And they go on their very, what, what we call the first missionary journey of Paul Uh, leaving up from Syria and traveling through uh, basically the eastern part to the central part of modern-day Turkey. Uh, While Paul's visiting some of those churches, he explains, here's what's going on. Uh, He's in a Jewish synagogue, and he says, look, I'm preaching the gospel to you guys in the synagogue first. Because, after all, Jesus was Jewish, and the promises are to the Jewish people in fulfillment of God's promises, and then they go to the nations. So when Paul goes into a a city, he goes in the synagogue first, and then... After a week or two weeks in the synagogue, he's going to go to the Gentiles. Well, the Jews are upset. Because, remember, the Jewish world was, we're the good guys. Gentiles are the bad guys. Can't go to them. They're the enemy. And so Paul and Barnabas explain to the Jews in the city what they're doing. Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47. Luke says, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. And the them is the Jews. Paul says, we had to speak the word of God to you first, i.e., you Jewish people. But since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, or the nations. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. Quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You may not notice what's happened there, but let's pay attention. Paul is quoting Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. The two passages, Isaiah 42, six and 49.6, that says God's call to Israel was to be a light to the nations. However, Simeon in Luke chapter 2, and note Luke is the same author of the book of Acts. Same author doing this. Simeon in Luke chapter 2 says that prophecy or those prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is a light of revelation to the nations that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But then Paul turns around and says, actually, it's about us. Also, the very same passages that were fulfilled by Jesus are also being fulfilled by the church, by Paul and Barnabas, by the missionary, by us. The task of Jesus in fulfilling the role of Israel was not completed. It's the role of the church. This is why, as some of you might remember, we did a few months ago. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priest a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen you, and Peter's written to Gentiles, to, Jew, to non-Jewish people, maybe including some Jewish people. We are God's people called to be in a relationship of intimacy with the creator of all things. So what's the point? The point is that the church is to be the embodiment of Christ to the world. We are to be the light of the world. So the question then becomes this. What does this mean for us? And let me give a couple thoughts. Number one, it means that the gospel is a call to discipleship. The gospel is a call to discipleship. It's not just simply about coming to Jesus and getting saved, about coming to Jesus and being part of in, in conversion. It's a call to being just like Jesus and in being just like Jesus, we embody Jesus to the world. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The call begins with us to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but it, it then transcends that. Th- think of it this way. Uh, in the garden, in, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, god the story of God's creation of humanity. And God didn't say, let's make humanity so they can be in the garden with us. That's not what God said. Let's make humanity so they can be with us. God says, let's make man in our image. Let's make humanity so they can reflect us, re- reflect me and my, my glory to the nations. God will be made known through humanity is why God created Adam and Eve. This means that the work of the church Is to make Christ known by making disciples of Christ who reflect his glory. I think one of the things that's happened in the Western Christian world for the last several hundred years that's causing us difficulty within our churches is the fact that we've focused too much for the last 300 years on making converts and not really making disciples. Conversion means that the goal is for everyone to kind of get to heaven. But discipleship means our goal is for us to know God and to reflect him and thereby making him known to the world. Conversion's—it's uh, a one-time thing. You know, you get con- converted, you're, you're good to go. And, and once, once we say conversion's the, the goal, now the, the difficulty for the churches is like, well, how do I keep them here? How, how do I get them to come back every Sunday? Well, you know, we want to keep church going, so what we do is we say, well, well um, uh, 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 be good. Try to be good. Discipleship, however, is the call of the church. And that's a lifelong process. Discipleship is uh, about emphasizing that there's a God of love who desires to be in relationship with us so that we then can reflect his glory and make him known. One one uh, a writer on, on, on the church says this. He says, Most of us have become quite good at the church thing, and yet disciples are the only thing that Jesus cares about. It's the only number that Jesus is counting, not our attendance or our budget or our buildings. Discipleship is like having a child. When we have a child, you take the child, the newborn child, to the doctor regularly, right, for, the, for these check-ins. And what does the doctor do at the three-month and six-month and 12-month check-in? They, they weigh the baby, and they measure the baby. And they take various tests to see if the baby is developing, maturing. And the, answer, and the reality is, that should be the same thing with us. As, as followers of Christ, we should be having regular check-ins to see, are we maturing? If some of you might be familiar with the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is writing to some Christians, uh, a, a community. In the book of Hebrews, by the way, is a sermon uh, more than it's a letter. Uh, and he says this in Hebrews chapter five, verses twelve through fourteen. He says, though, by this time you ought to be teachers. Instead, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The goal of the church, of us, is to create disciples who grow in the likeness and image and reflect Christ's glory, and thereby make him known to the nations. I remember one time that uh, uh, a person that had recently come to faith in Christ, and I was discipling this person, uh, and uh, a medical situation arose um, and I thought, well, man, if we pray over this person and, and, and come alongside this person and just give this prayer or whatever, he's going to see God work in a mighty way and if God would miraculously heal him. This would be great. This will really strengthen this person's faith and, 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 and he'll see and just really help him along this process. And as I was praying for that, I realized, well another option might be that maybe God doesn't heal him. And maybe this person, uh, maybe the church just rallies around and comes to aid and support and comfort and provides for the, for, for the person's needs here and provides for the person's needs there and provides. And, and the, the person gets to see the church in, opera, in, in action. And, and I'm thinking, well, like, which one's better, right? To see the miracle and the miraculous element or to see the church coming around him. And then I thought about the Apostle Paul. This man named Paul, early in the book of Acts, is actually a Jewish man who goes by his Jewish name, Saul, in the first eight or nine chapters of the book of Acts. And this Jewish man named Saul was violently opposed to Christianity. He really thought Jesus was a blasphemer. He really thought these Christians had to be done away with. And he was going out hunting down Christians to have them brought back to Jerusalem for trial of blasphemy. Well, one day, while this man named Paul is going from Jerusalem to the city of Damascus up in modern-day Syria, Jesus appears to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, note carefully. Why are you persecuting me? Saul's not persecuting Jesus, folks. He's after Jesus' followers, but that's the point, isn't it? We love Jesus, but not the church. It's not possible. Because when you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. When you love the church, you're loving Jesus. So this man named Saul is then blinded. And people lead him by the hand into the city of Damascus. And for three days, and note three days is significant, he's blinded. And then God appears to a man named Ananias, who's a follower of Jesus in the city of Damascus, and says, Ananias, I want you to go to this Paul guy and want you to lay hands on him and be healed. And Ananias is like, Lord, I know you're God and you're really, really, really smart, but do you know who this guy is? Do you know why he's here? He's here to hunt people like me down. God tells Ananias, go. This man's my chosen instrument. Ananias goes and lays hands on Paul. And Paul's eyes are opened. You see, God could have divinely healed Paul without Ananias. He could have miraculously said, you know, Paul, here's the deal. I'm Lord. You need to know that. Your eyes are now open. Now you can see the truth. Instead, he didn't. He sent Ananias to him. See, sometimes it would be nice for the miracle to happen. It's a great testimony. and Some of you have experienced such miracles, and that's great. And we continue to pray and believe that God does miracles. But sometimes God says, no, I'd rather have my, this person just be dependent and have my church come alongside that person and just really be the church to them and minister to them and heal them. The church is the means by which God makes himself known to the nations. Here's the bad news. The devil knows that too. The devil knows that too. And the devil's going to do whatever he can to wreak havoc and destruction, whether it's tearing pastors down and causing them to, to go into immorality, or whether it's tearing churches apart with dissension and strife. The devil wants to bring the church down but we can't let them. The church is the visible manifestation of Christ to the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for the call that you've given to us. The fact that you have come and lived, died and risen again that we might have life and have it more abundantly. You've been resurrected, Lord, and you promised us, too, that someday we, too, will rise and there will no longer be any mourning or death or crying or pain because the old order has passed away. You're going to make it all new. And, Lord, we recognize this morning that you're in the process of making it new through us, through this congregation, through the congregations of those who listen online, through the congregations of churches around the world whether it's Karunakar's church in India, whether it's our brothers and sisters' churches around the country or around the world, you are in the process of making all things new through us. So we pray, Father, that you would empower us and inspire us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to be God's people. That someday you'll turn to us and say, Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into joy today. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.